правоохранительным органам и армии мною дан приказ открывать огонь на поражение без предупреждения. given the order to law enforcement agencies and the army to shoot to kill without warning. That is what you just heard Kasim Jumar Takayev, the president of Kazakhstan, say in a televised address on January 7th. Alongside calling protesters terrorists, former diplomat Takayev used harsh rhetoric to justify a violent crackdown on anti-government protests that spread nationwide and sparked large-scale violence in Almaty during the first week of January. At this point, over 160 people have reportedly died. More than 2,000 have been injured, and around 6,000 have been detained by authorities. To make matters worse for Kazakh citizens demanding political change, more than 2,000 Russian troops have been deployed as so-called peacekeepers to assist Takayev's regime. How long do the Russian troops plan to stay? It's not clear. Takayev announced January 11th that the withdrawal would begin on January 13th and would be complete in 10 days. But earlier, Russian President Vladimir Putin said that the force sent by the Russian-dominated Collective Treaty Security Organization, or CSTO, would leave only once their mission was complete. Who exactly is calling the shots? And what does this mean for the potential of a further Russian invasion of Ukraine? My name is Alina Aliamkent, and you are listening to Media in Progress, where we follow the journey the team of the Kiev Independent takes as we establish an independent English media in Ukraine. Although we mainly focus on news in Ukraine, we also understand the importance of accurately covering the region as a whole. Our journalists had previously put together explainers on the Belarusian crisis, and now our reporters Alex Sukov and Max Hunder, whom you will be hearing from later in this episode, turn their attention to Kazakhstan. As a country formerly under Moscow's yoke that has had its fair share of people power moments, Ukraine can relate to the hope that the Kazakh protesters felt when demonstrating against their corrupt government at the start of 2022. But each country is different. So before diving into the violent events that have brought the world's attention to Kazakhstan, let's first cover the basics. Kazakhstan is the second most populous Central Asian country after Uzbekistan but its geographical expanse is vast. It's the ninth largest country in the world, nearly the size of all of Western Europe. It is home to 18.7 million people, including Kazakhs, Russians, Uzbeks, Ukrainians, among others. Hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians settled the vast Kazakh plains in the 19th and early 20th centuries, while tens of thousands more were forcibly relocated there by the Soviet Union between the 1930s and 50s. In 1989, Ukrainians made up 5% of Kazakhstan's population, but this has since declined as many emigrated in the years after independence, which the country gained after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. The leader at the time, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, stayed on as president of the independent state for almost 30 years, relinquishing his formal position in 2019 to current president Kasim Jumar Takayev while retaining the ability to control events behind the scenes. Within Kazakhstan's vast borders are a large variety of mineral resources, including 3% of global oil reserves and 20% of global uranium production. 
It was the increased price of liquefied petroleum gas used for vehicles that first sparked the unrest in western Kazakhstan on January 2nd. Eventually, on January 5th, what began as a relatively small-scale protest against fuel prices turned into a genuine uprising when protesters seized administrative buildings in Almaty, the largest city in Kazakhstan and the former capital of the country. That was Alek Sukhov, one of the Kiev independence political reporters, who's been following and writing about the events in Kazakhstan. Internet access was completely blocked in the country starting January 5th, which was when the country lurched from primarily peaceful protests into riots. What still remains murky is exactly who turned the peaceful protests violent, storming the airport in Almaty and setting the government buildings and vehicles on fire. Many Kazakh experts now view at least some of this violence as an opportunistic effort by elite factions to use the genuine protests to undermine Takayev using hired thugs. So basically the former capital was under protesters' control for some time. After that, the government uh, began a counterattack. At least 160 dead, more than 2,000 injured, and around 6,000 protesters have been detained by authorities. Many protesters had been chanting, government resign, before police moved in and clashed with demonstrators last Wednesday. The government did indeed resign on January 5th, but it didn't mean that any positive change would come of it. What resigned is the cabinet of ministers of Kazakhstan. And I think it's kind of a formality because all the actual uh, real power is held by Takayev, formerly also held by Nazarbayev. And the cabinet of ministers is just one of the numerous bodies that was controlled by Takayev and Nazarbayev. So it was sort of a concession by, like a very formal concession by the Takayev regime to protesters. And I don't think it means much actually because if Takayev resigned, that would mean a lot. But the resignation of the cabinet of ministers is a relatively minor thing. The government resignation was not enough for protesters, still coming out in thousands the next day. Takayev then asked the collective security treaty organization consisting of Russia, Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan to help restore order. Soon after, a Russian-led military force arrived in Kazakhstan, ready to take advantage of yet another struggle between people protesting for democracy and a regime willing to use force against its own citizens. Ukraine 2014, Belarus 2020, Kazakhstan 2022. One of the most important things is the resurrection of a, like a neo-Soviet empire by Russia. And it's, it's similar uh, to the situation in Belarus, when Russia used the largest protest in the history of Belarus. And it helped Lukashenko's regime to crack down on them and to destroy the opposition and then uh, turn Lukashenko into its puppet. And a similar thing happened in Kazakhstan. So the most likely scenario is that the regime will just become even more authoritarian, like in Belarus, after the recent protests. Another possible scenario offered by those who have spent years in Kazakhstan is that Takayev will now rebalance Kazakh elite dynamics to minimize the role of the Nazarbayev family. He is also expected to adjust Kazakh foreign policy to be more in line with Russia's interests. 
it is therefore extremely important for the world to pay attention to the events in Kazakhstan, as well as Russia's next possible play for increasing power in Ukraine, which Moscow insists is in its rightful sphere of influence. But with attention already focused on Russia's threats to Ukrainian sovereignty, many Western media outlets had little understanding of Kazakhstan's political context, and lacked the relevant contacts on the ground to report incisively on what was unfolding. Central Asia reporting in the Western press has been famously poor, generally. While writing an explainer piece about the events in Kazakhstan, our journalist Max Hunder spent a lot of time sifting through local reports on Russian-language telegram channels, in addition to speaking to several experts and journalists who had been covering Kazakhstan for years. I definitely felt there was immediately a reason for the Cape Independent to cover this want to fill the void that was being left by a very slow uptake from Western media on this and by lack of local coverage or a severe lack of local English language coverage on the ground. This was because there are very few English language journalists in Kazakhstan as it is and, and many of the ones that are there normally happen to be out of the country at this point. They were either on holiday or visiting their families abroad. One of the most prominent English language journalists covering Kazakhstan, Joanna Lillis, tried to immediately return to Kazakhstan but was turned away at the Kazakh-Kyrgyz border, and most likely wasn't the only one. It became clear that the Kyiv Independent could offer added value to help fill the void. In addition to our language skills and familiarity with Russian interference, our new, relatively small organization can move quickly to cover events. We can all speak Russian, which helps a lot. It meant that we could act nimbly and quickly to get this big explainer written up in two days and not have it sit on an editor's desks for hours at a time. Everything was done very rapidly and with no delays. Yeah, that was very good. And I think we used our niche very well there and, and very appropriately. And I think we added to the conversation in a very helpful and positive way and one which made the discourse better. At this moment in time, the Kyiv Independent mainly reports on news in Ukraine. But from the very beginning, we aspired to cover Eastern Europe and Eurasia as well. Ukraine doesn't exist in a vacuum, and Russia's neo-imperialist ambitions extend beyond Ukraine. Indeed, one of the big questions about the ongoing Russia-led intervention in Kazakhstan has been, what are the implications for Putin's standing threat to resolve Russia's self-claimed national security interests vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine by military technical means? When we were talking about whether we should cover just Ukraine, I think almost everyone was in favor of actually focusing on the region too. It's just that we thought that in the beginning we would just do Ukraine to really focus on what we can do best and to do that until we uh, can grow our capacity. That is Olga Rudanka, our editor-in-chief. When she thinks of a fully developed and funded Kyiv independent in the future, she envisions a separate department covering different countries in Eastern Europe and Eurasia. At the Kyiv independent, we definitely want to have a very strong region section. And we want to cover Belarus and Russia and other countries in the region because uh, what is happening there has a direct impact on Ukraine and Ukraine is, is our main focus but also because we know that we have the capacity to cover this region better than uh, mainstream media. And the question for us is when we have the resources in the newsroom that allow us to do that on a regular basis. Because right now we are, we are writing about, you know, about something that happens in Belarus that is very important and we just can't miss it. But to do it more consistently and uh, to offer more in-depth coverage and maybe even travel there, we need significantly 
bigger resources and I'm, I'm talking about financials we're just starting with, with fundraising we're extremely grateful to our supporters our patrons who are pledging monthly contributions to the key independent and we can do what we do now thanks to them but we need to find ways to grow that and when we do covering the region is going to be one of the priorities for us In order for us to cover not just Ukraine, but the important events in other countries like Kazakhstan that can affect Ukraine, our media platform will have to continue to develop and grow. As it is still early in the process of reaching sustainability, with our staff only now starting to receive some payment for their work, our media in progress needs your support. You can support us by becoming a patron and pledging a monthly contribution. The link is in the top right corner of our website. Your contributions fund our work and help us bring accurate, timely news from Ukraine and its neighbors, as well as explain the significance of events and the uncertain future of our region to you, our audience. Music